Welcome back and thank you for joining us again as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at Revelation chapter 1 and today we will be beginning Revelation chapter 2 with the first seven verses, Christ's first message to his church and specifically the church at Ephesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last number of years, in a lot of evangelical materials, we've had this obsession with receiving a personal word from God. We seem to be becoming less concerned with what God says to his people through his holy scripture and more concerned with what he wants to say specifically to me or to my church. We want to discern God's secret special will for our lives and not worry so much about his general revealed will to all believers. But as I like to tell my counselees here at the Colony of Mercy, we obey ourselves into God's will. It is only as we live in relationship with him and are concerned with following his revealed will in scripture that we will find ourselves living in his special secret will for our lives. And we start to see that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If we want to know what God's will is for me, for us, for our churches, for the American church in general, even during this time, with a a major health crisis ravaging our country and our world, we don't need to discern some special secret message from God. We need to look at his word and we will find his will for the church here in Revelation chapter two and three. Because these seven messages that we find in these two chapters are not limited to seven historical churches in the first century, nor are they really describing seven different ages that the church will go through before Jesus Christ returns. Rather, as Alan Johnson writes, even though the words of Christ refer initially to the first century churches located in particular places, by the Spirit's continual relevance, they transcend that time limitation and speak to all the churches in every generation. Or as N.T. Wright succinctly puts it, all the promises and all the warnings are for all the churches. We all, individual Christians and churches alike, drift through many seasons in our Christian walk and will end up most likely finding ourselves at one point or another inhabiting one of these seven churches of Revelation. And so these seven letters to the churches are just as much letters to the 21st century American church as they are to the first century church in Asia Minor. And so in that regard, these seven letters to the churches aren't so much letters as they are oracles. The book of Revelation itself is one big letter, and the seven letters to the churches are messages within that letter. The equivalent in scripture is not Paul's epistles, but the oracles that we see throughout the Old Testament prophetic books, when God would give a message to his prophet for a particular people, city, or nation. And as such, these letters or oracles serve to reinforce the image from chapter 1 of Revelation of Jesus being one with the sovereign and omnipotent God. These oracles are the second person of the Trinity, giving messages to his prophet for his people, just as in the Old Testament we see the first person of the Trinity doing so for his people. And both do so by means of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
And so when we read these messages to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we should do so with the mindset that thus saith the Lord. And in fact, that precise formula is used in these oracles, as we'll see right off the bat in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Before we jump into them, the form of the oracles is first a greeting to the angel or messenger of the church. Second, a depiction of Jesus in glorious terms, similar to or taken from John's previous vision from him, of him in chapter 1. Third, an expression of knowledge about the church that is usually something praiseworthy. Fourth, a rebuke for something that Christ has against that church. Fifth, a command for the one with an ear to hear to pay attention to what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, an eschatological or end times promise. And so we are going to look at the first of these seven letters today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So follow along if you have your Bibles open. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I just have one point for this message today, and I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. And that is that a love of truth without a corresponding love of people is not the love of Jesus. A love of truth without a corresponding love of people is not the love of Jesus. The Ephesian church did exhibit a love of truth. They loved the truth and fought for the truth and discerned the truth. That's precisely what Jesus commends them for in verses 2 and 3. When he tells them, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. In fact, as we look at the Ephesian church, both biblically and historically, if any church knew good teaching and the importance of holding up truth, it was the church at Ephesus. Back in Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul had planted the Ephesian church during a short stay at the end of his second missionary journey. He then returned during his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 19 and stayed there ministering for over two years. And in between those two visits of Paul, we see Priscilla and Aquila training and discipling Apollos, whose teaching ability apparently exceeded even Paul's, based on the opinion of some believers in the church at Corinth. 
When Paul finally departed Ephesus, he entrusted the Ephesian church to Timothy. And both of his epistles that we find in the Bible, written to Timothy, were written as he pastored the church at Ephesus. And later, church tradition tells us that eventually the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, arrived in Ephesus, where John took a major leading role in the church. And so by the time Jesus addressed this message to them, the Ephesian church had already been taught by two apostles and the disciple of an apostle. Or put another way, 18 of the 27 New Testament books were written by pastors of the Ephesian church. And upwards of eight of the New Testament books were written either to the church at Ephesus or to one of its pastors. And we know that Paul, Timothy, and John had all stressed the need for the church to guard the truth entrusted to it. In Acts chapter 20, Paul summons the Ephesian elders to meet him at Miletus, where he tells them in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I have never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Similarly, he later wrote to Timothy, again, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 4. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Two chapters later in 1 Timothy, Paul describes the type of man that Timothy should install as elders in the church in, at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And of course, that list is heavily slanted towards character as the major qualification for an elder, with one major exception, and that was the ability to teach. And then towards the end of Paul's life, he again reminds Timothy as pastor of the Ephesian church in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 5, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The Apostle John also gets in on the fun in his epistles, encouraging the Ephesian church to hold up the truth. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he reminds his beloved church, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He later wrote in 2 John 7 and 2 John 10 and 11, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't greet him for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. And then again in 3 John, he rejoices that the church at Ephesus had heeded his instruction 
And in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. And with these three pillars of the faith repeating the same refrain, to love the truth, to teach the truth, to discern every spirit and prophet and teacher and examine them against the truth. The Ephesian church had gotten the message. They were zealous for the truth. They were zealous for persevering in the truth. And that really is one of the reasons why we often are not as zealous about persevering in the truth. Because it is hard work. It requires constant vigilance. But the Ephesian church engaged in that hard work. They engaged in constant vigilance to guard the truth that Paul and Timothy and John had passed down to them. They had their theological bona fides down pat. They knew their Bible and their doctrine. They would have boasted in their ability to discern. They were willing even to endure hardship for the sake of the truth. The church at Ephesus didn't need a rock band and a smoke machine for Sunday worship as long as they had the Word of God. They wanted pastors who would preach deep sermons rather than relevant self-help talks. And they would have echoed C.S. Lewis in finding theology books more devotional than devotional books. A couple of years ago, as I prepared to preach this passage at a church that I was pastoring, I had spoken to a former counselee from the Colony of Mercy who was now engaged in his covenant church and He had called me because he was discouraged because he had gone to church that previous Sunday and not once was he required to open his Bible. And that's the type of believers that the Ephesian church was producing, the kind that would be frustrated and discouraged if they went to church on Sunday morning and did not need to open the Word of God. And before we move on, we need to recognize that this is a good thing. Jesus commends the Ephesian church for this. We should love the truth. We should fight against error. We should discern the difference between the two. In fact, this passage tells us that to do so is to be Christ-like. In Revelation 2.6, Jesus says, Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about who the Nicolaitans were, but the oracle to Pergamum later on in Revelation, seems to indicate that they might have been involved in idolatry and sexual immorality, all in Christ's name. And Jesus says that he, like the Ephesians, hates their practices. And so he commends the Ephesians for this, for standing against the same people that Christ himself would stand against. And remember that it was Jesus also who, at the Sermon on the Mount, had told his disciples in Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Paul and Timothy and John and even Jesus himself all tell us that we should be very much like the Bereans who in Acts chapter 17 
verse 11, it says the people here in Berea were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The church at Ephesus had learned that lesson. They examined their scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And both the New Testament in general and Jesus himself specifically desire that we would do the same, that we would daily examine the scriptures, that we would uphold truth, that we would fight against error, and that we would discern the difference between the two. But Christ's message to the Ephesians, of course, doesn't end there. And after praising their diligent defense of the truth, he goes on to say in verse 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, some of your translations might say something along the lines of that you have left your first love. And this first love is often interpreted to mean Jesus, that they had departed from a love of Christ. Except that's not actually what the verse says. And that's why I like the way that the Christian Standard Bible, which I'm reading from, translates it here as, you have left the love you had at first. Because that's what Jesus is driving at. They once had a love. They were known for their love as well as for their knowledge and their truth. And this isn't guesswork, but it's rather what Scripture itself tells us. Several years after leaving it, Paul had written to the Ephesian church and commended them in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 16, that this is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. The faith of the Ephesian believers had produced love. Later in chapter 4, verse 2 of Ephesians, Paul urges them to continue bearing with one another in love because of their shared faith. John made the same point in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, where he had written, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The love that the Ephesian church was known for and was supposed to be known for was not just a love for Jesus, though they certainly had that as well, but rather love for one another. Second way we know this is that the idea of love in verse 4 is held in contrast with the hatred of the Nicolaitans' practices in verse 6. The implication seems to be that the Ephesians used to be known for who they loved, and now they were merely known for what they hated. And if that's not convicting for those of us living in the American church, I don't know what is. The Ephesian church used to be known for who they loved. But by the time Jesus writes this letter to them, they were more known for the things that they hated. They were more known for the things they were against rather than the things that they were for. And third, the correction for lack of love in verse 4 is in verse 5, to do the works you did at first. And this reminds us that the love that Jesus has in mind, the love that the Ephesian church was once known for and should be known for again, was not mere sentiment. It wasn't nice, pleasant feelings, but rather it was a concrete, demonstrable love. It was the love that John described for them in his first epistle, in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, 
where he told them, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. And he goes on in chapter 4, verses 10 through 11 to say, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. This is the love that the Ephesian church was once known for. They were known for laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters. They were known for sharing this world's goods when they had it with a brother or a sister in need. They were known for compassion and showing that compassion to those who needed it, even if they didn't necessarily deserve it. And so this is the love that Jesus says that they lost. Yes, they retained their truth. They retained their doctrine. They retained the fact they wanted their Bibles open on Sunday mornings. And yet they were not known for love. And so this is what Jesus, even at a time like this, is calling us to do as well as the church in America. And so this is what God's will is for me, for you, for our churches, for the American church in general. It's to return to the love that we had at first. It's to not only uphold truth, but also reach out in love. And so how can we do this? I'll offer a few suggestions. First, we need to learn how to prioritize truth. And that's not just to make truth a priority, but to prioritize the truth that we hold and know what are the hills that we die on and what are the things that we can agree to disagree. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says, not all doctrines are at the heart of the gospel. Not all errors are properly labeled heresy. And not all disagreements are worth fighting about. The problem for many of us and in many of our churches is that our pet issues become the ones that we take a stand on, that we go to the mat for, that we are willing to die or kill for, regardless of their centrality to the faith. Many of us could probably think of churches that we know or that we've heard of that have split over silly things like the color of carpet or whether they should sing hymns or praise songs. And it's even worse when we also diminish the true first order doctrines like the Trinity in order to elevate and defend second or third order doctrines. We need to know the truth and how to prioritize it along the lines of Scripture. I'm preaching through Hebrews here in the Colony Chapel, and uh, at an earlier point in Hebrews, I made the distinction for the residents in the program that we need to figure out what are creedal issues, uh, issues that the whole church has always believed that are the centrality to the faith. What are those confessional issues that kind of determine are denominations, things like infant baptism or believer's baptism? And then what are conscience issues, things that maybe God has impressed on my heart and life that aren't necessarily things that all believers need to hold to? And the problem is that we often take those conscience issues, those issues that are important to me, and we want to hold all believers to those issues. And we don't take the stand on the issues that are of primary importance to the gospel. And we know what those primary ones are. Those are the ones that were, even Jesus summarized the whole law as to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he condemned the Pharisees for tithing out of their spice rack and yet forgetting the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. Second, we need to learn how to disagree civilly. Of course, the primary characteristic of a disciple, according to Jesus, is not our love of the truth, but our love for one another. John, in chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And the point, the repeated refrain throughout the New Testament, including in Christ's message to the Ephesian church here in Revelation 2, is that if we act like jerks in the defense of truth, we've missed the whole point of the truth. And so we need to learn how to disagree with one another and even with unbelievers in a way that, is, that embodies the gospel and not in a way that contradicts the gospel. Thirdly, we need to learn how to separate the sin from the sinner. Notice that Jesus commends the Ephesian church not for hating the Nicolaitans, but for hating their practices. They didn't hate the people, they hated what the people were doing. And not only do we need to be known as much, if not more, for the people we love as for the practices we hate, but we need to be very careful that our hatred of sinful practices does not make us hate the image bearers committing them. And so often it can be easy for us to say, well, of course I love them. I love everybody as God calls me to. But again, the way that the New Testament challenges us is that the way that we love is really shown in how we behave towards people, how we talk about people. It's determined by the things that we actually do and not just by the feelings or the thoughts that we have. And so we need to be careful that we are not hating image bearers of God just because we disagree with their practices. Fourthly, we need to learn what it's really like to be Christ-like. One of the primary emotions, in fact, the, the predominant emotion ascribed to Christ in his earthly ministry is compassion. Uh, and in Mark's gospel, in Mark 6, verse 34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. For Jesus, compassion always came first, and then he taught out of that compassion. Compassion was his motivation for teaching. And notice that it says that he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, better than any of us, knew that they were sheep without a shepherd because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. He knew that it was their, their own sin that had led them to be sheep without a shepherd, and yet he still had compassion on them. And out of that compassion, he taught them many things. Our motivation for our teaching of the truth, our defense of the truth, must always be compassion. It must never be pride in ourselves. It must never be motivated by, motivated by wanting to appear to know more or to put people in their place. It must Christ-like ministry, Christ-like teaching, Christ-like defense of the truth is always motivated by compassion. Because we want to see people who are bound to sin and to error and to falsehood be set free by the truth. And fifthly, we need to learn humility. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul writing to this church three decades or so earlier. Said, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love 
making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We probably have all heard pastors or teachers quote Ephesians 4.1, urging us to live worthy of the calling we have received, and then follow that up with a whole checklist of things that we should do or that we shouldn't do. And you notice that's not what Paul does here. According to Paul, what does a life worthy of our calling look like? It looks like humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice that it doesn't look like drawing theological lines in the sand and angrily tearing apart anyone who remotely comes close to the lines that we ourselves have drawn. It looks like patience, gentleness, humility, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, that's not to say that truth isn't important. Of course, truth is important. Jesus himself, to the Ephesian church, commends them for believing that truth is important. But what he's really saying is that how we defend the truth is equally as important. And based on how closely the New Testament ties truth with love, we could really say that truth without love is not really truth. That truth without love is not really truth. Kyle J. Howard, a counselor that I follow online, says, When you take a step back and look at a debate with a bird's eye view, pay attention to which side is sinfully angry, spitting venom, and seeking to devour others. Observe which side is engaging with love, charity, and a reserved demeanor. It will be helpful in discerning who is in truth. When someone is walking in truth and is standing in faithfulness before God, they don't feel the need to slander, hurl venom, or devour others. They are content because they know God and His Word will defend the truth. They feel no panic or need to compromise self in truth's defense. This is how our interactions with people in teaching and defending the truth should be characterized. It should look like being confident in God and His Spirit to ultimately defend the truth. Again, I'm recording this in mid-April 2020. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I'm here in New Jersey. Our state is totally locked down. Churches are not meeting. And we've reached the point where our efforts, our social distancing efforts, seem to be making an impact. And there's calls for churches to reopen, for businesses to reopen, for life to start getting back to normal. And it's just started over the last few days, and I've already started to see on social media and online, vitriol between believers who disagree on how we should handle these issues. And that's not what the Word of God calls us to. The Word of God, even on these sensitive matters, calls us to live worthy of our calling in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But there's another reason why we need to learn humility, and that's what the text tells us about Jesus. He introduces himself to the church at Ephesus in verse 1 by saying, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, the one speaking this message is the one who is actually in charge of the church. The one who is actually the arbiter of truth. The one who actually gets to decide who is a Christian and who isn't, or which church is a genuine one, and which one isn't. 
He is the one who decides who's actually walking in the truth and who isn't. And notice the corresponding judgment on Ephesus. Jesus calls the church to repent of their loveless ways and return to their previous love. And then in the second half of verse 5, he says, Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, if the Ephesian church would not return to their previous love, it would be they who would cease to be a church. For all of their efforts to defend the truth, to defend the gospel, to draw the boundaries of what is Christianity and what isn't, what makes up a true church and what doesn't, if they would not love, it would be they who would cease to be a church. Jesus would remove their lampstand. And unfortunately, that seems to be the case. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, N.T. Wright tells the story of visiting modern-day Ephesus and seeing all of the great ancient ruins and, um, and even the, the church where a great council of the church was held in A.D. 431 and all of the great Roman buildings and the Temple of Artemis and the Colosseums and everything that went into this city that was one of the, the thriving cities in the ancient world that was the Roman capital in the region of Asia Minor. And yet he said that currently in Ephesus there are no active churches there today. That if there are any Christians there, they are in hiding. And then he goes on to say that would have been almost as unthinkable to John's audience as it would be for us to imagine our great churches empty and in ruins, with no new Christian fellowships rising up to take their place. But this sense of devastation of a place where there was once a thriving Christian witness, where there is no more, is precisely what Jesus warned the Ephesian church about in verse 5. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place. Like much in these letters, that is a severe warning. Yes, the failure to defend truth is one way to destroy a church. But what Jesus reminds the church at Ephesus and reminds us is that a failure to love is another way to destroy a church. Because truth and love are inseparably important. Now we now are being given a taste of what it looks like to have empty churches. We are still holding a lot of online gatherings and live streaming sermons and having podcasts like this one, and yet our church buildings sit largely empty. And so Jesus is giving us a taste of what this looks like when the lampstand is removed and calling us to repent of our lovelessness and return to the love that we had at first. If we love Christ and if we love like Christ, we will be characterized not by truth or love, but by truth and love. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, the author says that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. And so according to the, the author of Hebrews, the way that his churches demonstrated their love for Jesus was by serving other believers. And so the Ephesian church receives a stern warning, but it also receives a blissful promise. In verse 7, Jesus says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise 
of God. Jesus is not encouraging military conquest here. Rather, the context tells us what, that, what it means to conquer or overcome, as some translations render it, is to persevere. And for the Ephesian church, the one who perseveres is the one who repents of his lovelessness, uh, repents of his loveless defense of truth, and returns to loving others for the sake of truth. That is the one who perseveres. That is the one who receives this promise. And the promise is that to such a one who repents from lovelessness and returns to the love he had at first, Jesus will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word paradise was borrowed from the Persian word for garden, and in both classical Greek, it referred to a garden, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was used to translate the Hebrew word for garden. The promise to those who persevere in both defending truth and acting in love is the tree of life, which is in the garden of God. And our mind should immediately be brought back to Genesis chapter 2, because that is what first century Jews had in mind when they thought of the paradise or the garden of God. Some even had the view that Eden remained hidden just out of view, almost in a pocket dimension, awaiting the eschaton, awaiting the last days when God would restore it and bring his people back into it. And that is what Jesus promises those who both defend truth and act in love. It's the tree of life in the garden of God. We are promised everlasting, unhindered fellowship with both God and man, walking arm in arm, so to speak, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the call of Christ to his people is to live that reality here and now in what is definitely not the garden of God, in expectation of the garden to come. We are to live now in this world as we will live eternally in the world to come. And that means both loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Because as he tells us, a love of truth without a corresponding love of people is not the love of Christ. Or to put it more positively, the love of Christ produces a love of truth and a corresponding love of people. The more we love Christ, the closer we draw to him, the more that we by faith allow him to live in us and through us, the more we will not only defend truth, but we'll also love people. And it is as we grow into loving truth and loving people that we not only experience and display to the world what awaits us in paradise, but it actually is what whets our appetite for our eternal destination. It is what helps us to persevere, even in the midst of all of the affliction, the suffering, the tribulation of this world, even in the midst of a global health crisis. We persevere because by loving truth and loving people, we have a foretaste of what God has waiting for us in eternity. Thank you for joining us as we look at the first of Christ's seven messages to the church, and we will look at the second message to the church next time.